So if you have a Bible, we encourage you to turn to the book of Esther. Today is our last Sunday in the book of Esther. We have been here eight weeks. This is week nine, and we will be covering chapters nine and ten today. So if you have a paper Bible, I encourage you to open it up to the middle. You'll find Psalms, head back towards the beginning. You'll see the book of Job and then Esther. So that'll hopefully help you find it. If you're on an app, then Esther chapter 9 is where we find ourselves today. And what I want to do is, because uh, what I'll be working through is Esther chapter 9, I want to read chapter 10, the three verses of chapter 10. I'll read that and then I will uh, pray. And uh, while you're finding that, I just want to say, isn't it good to be a part of ascending church? A church that is thinking beyond itself. And to just hear those list of people, and that's not even everyone, that God has sent out from these, uh, from these people, from us, from this church, to spread his fame is just remarkable. And I'm just thankful to be on the journey with you. It's hard because you lose people you love and uh, they're uh, dear to you, but they're spreading Christ and we get to celebrate and support and pray. So we encourage you in that. Also, we'll be hearing more about our work among the nations on December the 8th and December the 15th as we do Hope for Nations Sundays, December 8th and December 15th. So make sure you mark that down. Esther, chapter 9 and 10. I'll read verse, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. And then I will pray. Esther chapter 10, verse 3, or verse 1 through 3. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. And so as we end the book of Esther, we, if you've been with us at all, you have to ask, how did Mordecai get to such a position? And that's what we'll celebrate in this last Sunday in the book of Esther. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you. Thank you that you are who you say you are. And every word of yours proves true. You are a refuge and a shield to those who take, put their hope in you and take refuge in you. Father, we ask that today, that today you would come near to us in a powerful way that we would be remarkably aware of your presence and your goodness and your love and your faithfulness. That, Father, not only would our heads be stimulated, that is, our, our brains would grow in knowledge, but we plead for our hearts to be filled with you. Please, Father, humble us that we might be receivers of your word. Father, may we have soft hearts. May we want to be changed. May, may we be reminded today of your goodness and your faithfulness. And I just ask that we would remember Christ today. We would treasure and adore him. Help us. Cause us to remember your great salvation. Cause us to remember that you are the God of great reversals. Cause us to remember your faithfulness. Please, oh God, help us today. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. So as we finish the book of Esther, we're going to do a, a brief history reminder. The book of Esther takes place between Ezra chapter 6 and chapter 7, which spans about 58 years. And Esther, the book, specifically is 10 years long, so to speak, 483 to 473. And what I wanted to do, it is upon the completion of the rebuilding of the temple is where you find this this 10-year span. I wanted to walk through just a brief timeline uh, to help us remember and maybe for those of you who haven't been with us, understand what leads us to chapter 9. So, 483 B.C. A king Ahasuerus gives a feast. A feast that spans 127 provinces, lasts, lasts 180 plus days, and it is a feast of drinking and showing off his power. He gets so drunk, he gets angry at his wife because she doesn't do what he says he uh, wants her to do, that is, parade her beauty around. Good for her that she didn't follow that, but it got her kicked out. She's no longer queen. We don't know if she was killed or not, but what we do know is now a king Ahasuerus does not have a queen. Then we know that he goes off in all of his pride and might to go off and defeat the Greeks who turned around and defeated him. So now he comes back and he is defeated and without a queen. And so he decides to have a beauty contest to find out who would be his next queen. And that's what we find in 479 to 478 is Esther comes into King Ahasuerus. She wins his favor and she becomes queen, which we see in Esther chapter 2 verse 16. Esther, an orphaned Jew who is now the queen of Persia. That is a remarkable turn of events. Now in 474, the enemy of the story, and this is not just a story, it is history, it is true, all of it's true. In 474, Haman, the enemy of the story, is an enemy of the Jewish people. Deep hatred for the Jewish people and specifically Deep hatred for Esther's father figure, Mordecai. Ultimately, he is her cousin, but he helped raise her. And Mordecai would not bow down to King Ahasuerus, or to Haman. And because of that, Haman hated him. And so in 474, Haman began to cast lot. Okay? A singular lot is called Pur. Multiple lots would be Purim. I am is the Hebrew suffix that makes things plural like the s in english so purim means multiple lots he cast lots which is the way of kind of discerning what they how to make a decision back in those days cast lots and he did so in the first month called nissan okay not the car the first month and as he did so the lot fell to make the day of death this is my term, the day when the Jews would be annihilated as the 12th month, the month of Adar, the 13th day. So if you follow month one of the Jewish calendar, day 13, the edict was sealed with the king's ring that all the Jews would be annihilated and that it would happen on one day, the 12th month of their calendar, which is actually between February and March of our calendar, which makes it the following year, 473, when the Jews would be annihilated. So, after the edict 
was stamped with the king's ring three months later. Three months later, 474, three months later, after Haman had the edict signed, sealed for the destruction of the Jews, here are the things that happen. One, Queen Esther goes to the king in order to try to save her people in an act of seeming faith. And as she does so, Haman, in a crazy twist of events, ends up being forced to honor the very man that he hated so much that led to this edict of destruction of the Jews in the first place. Then, Haman is exposed for trying to kill the Jews, of which Queen Esther is one of, by Queen Esther, and the king goes into a rage and ends up declaring that Haman would be killed on the very pile or post that Haman had erected to kill Mordecai. The king says, now, Haman, you're going to be killed on that. And upon a 75-foot, six-and-a-half-story tall beam, Haman is impaled upon that beam and killed. Very gruesome, but it's in the Bible, so I lay it out there for you. And then, in another twist of events, Mordecai is raised to Haman's position of power. All of that happens around 474 B.C. after three months. And so, in 474... Esther chapter 8 verse 9 tells us that now that Mordecai is in power, he issues a decree. And his decree comes out in the third month on the 23rd day that he is going to issue an edict that allows the Jews to defend themselves when all the enemies of the Jews raise up to kill them. So here's what they found out is that anything signed with the king's ring cannot be reversed. So they couldn't undo the edict to kill all the Jews, so now they had to go and create a new edict that would help counter the previous edict. And that edict was the Jews can defend themselves on this day, the 12th month of Adar, the 13th day, the Jews can defend themselves when the enemies of the Jews attack them, as the previous edict had said. Now, I hope you understand. So, 12 months between the declaration that the Jews would die and the day that they were going to be killed. Three months later, you have a new decree, which means you got about less than nine months for a massive organizational plan to take place. Mordecai has got to get news out to every single person in the district. That is 127 provinces from Pakistan, modern-day Pakistan, to southern Sudan. And so it says in chapter 8, they're taking all these horses, they're sending them out. Can you imagine, okay, you go here, you go here, you go here, you go here. And they've got to get it all done in nine months in order that everybody knows that the Jews can defend themselves when this death date comes about. Now, the death date arrives. Esther chapter 9, verse 1. It is the 12th month of Adar, the 13th day. And it's on this day that we find ourselves in Esther chapter 9, verse 1. And it says this. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over the Jews, the reverse occurred. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. 
the Jews actually gained mastery over those who hated them. Verse 2. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them for fear of the Jews had fallen on all the peoples. And if you have read the Old Testament much at all, what you see is that when God goes before his people and fights for them, what regularly happens for the enemies of God is that they become afraid. There's even some battles that the enemies lose without the people of Israel having even to strike a blow because they're so afraid or they're thrown into such confusion because God is fighting for them. This is what you see here. They are now afraid because... The Jews are going forth, and we would understand that to be our God is fighting for them. Look at verse 3. You see their fear towards Mordecai as well. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the providence. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Now the Jews... On this day, the 12th month of Adar, the 13th day, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Verse 6, in Susa, the citadel itself, this one city, the capital city of the king of the empire, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and then also killed, and I won't read these names, but it tells who these names are. Verse 10, the 10 sons of Haman... And the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Now, in case you're tempted to think the Jews have now been released to get revenge, that's not what's happening. They were released to defend themselves in this sense of a, a just war, so to speak. They were released to defend themselves, and we know it was not revenge because of the last phrase in chapter 10, which says, and they, or verse 10, the last phrase of verse 10 of chapter 9, it says, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Now, that might not mean much to you, so let's hit rewind just a second. When Haman, the enemy of the people of the Jews, issued an edict, he said, all of you on this day, you will be able to kill and annihilate all the Jews and take all their plunder, take all their stuff, it'll be yours. So now when Mordecai in chapter 8, verse 11, issues his decree, he says, Jews, you'll be able to defend yourself and you will be able to take all of their stuff. However, although it was permissible, what we see them doing is not taking their plunder in order to show they did only what was necessary to defend themselves. They set themselves apart from the pagan nations who were just going to get as much as they could. And here, it says multiple times in chapter 9, they laid no hand on the plunder. Which means this was not a ravenous plan of revenge. It was an opportunity to spare their lives as people were attacking them. And so, what we then also see is that as the 500 people in Susa were killed, we also see that the 10 sons of Haman were killed. And here's what we read in verse 11. 
that very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa of the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? Whatever your wish is, it will be granted to you. And what further is your request? And it shall be fulfilled. And so Esther makes another request to the king. And here's what she says. If it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow, that's the 14th day of the 12th month of Adar, let them be allowed tomorrow to do the same thing that they did today, according to the day's edict. And then on that day, let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows, which was a normal thing in the Persian empire to deter future crimes, to take these criminals who have died and to place them up, we know, on these massive beams to show you should not be against the Jews. That's what this statement would be. It would be a deterrent. So verse 14, the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. You might ask, why did Esther ask for one more day of defending themselves? More than likely, there was this sense of, that there were more people in Susa still trying to kill the Jews. And so it was this sense of, you're going to need to protect yourself one more day. She probably got wind of this, and that's why she asked the king. Verse 15, the Jews who are in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now let's go back to our timeline just a second. Almost done with the history lesson, okay? I know you didn't bank for this, but stay with me. We're going someplace, and it'll apply to your life, okay? Here it is. 12th month of Adar, 13th day, 75,000 people were killed according to the verses that follow here throughout the entire province. This is, you should view this as this is how many people were ready to take up arms even though they knew there was another edict to defend themselves, how many were ready to kill the people of God. 75,000 were killed, 500 in Susa. Now here's what happened. That's the 13th day. On the 14th day, two things happened. One is that in Susa, they had to defend themselves again, and 300 were killed. But in the rural parts, and the parts other than in Susa, they had a feast, a remembrance, and a celebration of God's salvation. It later came to be known as the Feast of Purim. Purim, that is, reminding you of those lots that Haman cast earlier in chapter 3, this is a feast to remember this God of great reversals. This God has done something to save the people. And they were observing this feast. And why did they have the feast? It tells us in Esther chapter 9, verse 26. Why did they have this feast? It says, therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days. Now, why two days? Because everybody else but Susa was celebrating this feast on the 14th. The people in Susa were fighting. So they actually celebrated this feast on the 15th the next day and so the commemoration, the annual remembrance, is a feast that happens on two days, the 14th and the 15th. So it says there, these two days, according to what was written, 
and at the appointed time every year, and here's the phrase, and I want you to say this word with me, that these days should be what? Remembered. This was the point of the feast, that they would remember. Remember what? Look at verse 22 with me. Esther chapter 9, verse 22. What were they to remember year by year when they had this feast? What were they to remember? Look at verse 22 with me. As the days on which the Jews, one, got relief. Relief from what? Relief from their suffering and the oppression. They were to remember that there was a God who saved them and rescued them and brought relief to them. What was the next thing they were to remember? Let's keep reading. Verse 22. Not only relief from the enemies, but also as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday. What were they to remember? They were to remember both their mourning and how the mourning flipped up on its head into a time of gladness. That's what the feast was to be about. So if you put it all together, a two-day feast that now Mordecai and Esther are putting into place that says every single year you need to remember the deliverance of God. God's salvation, you need to remember his relief of your suffering. You need to remember that God is the God of great reversals, that he's turned your mourning into gladness. And ultimately what we will see is that you just need to remember that God has been faithful to you. And this is what we see as described in verse 24 as kind of, it's a summary verse of what the author of Esther wants you to take away. A summary verse. Look at verses 23 and 24. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. And what he had written was that you should observe this two-day feast. Verse 24. Why this feast? Because Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called the days Purim after the term poor. They were to observe this feast. Now, with all that said, history lesson done. I know it was long. How do you apply it? Those three ideas... We too, having read this entire book, we need to apply it in these three ways. We too need to remember the salvation of our God. We need to remember that our God specializes in great reversals. And we need to remember that our God is faithful. The first one is that we need to remember and even rejoice in God's salvation. Now, what we know, if you're a follower of Jesus, what we know is this. There will come a day. A day when Jesus returns. He will bring in a new heavens and a new earth. The old will be completely gone. The new will be ushered in. There will be no more suffering, no more sin. You'll be in the presence of King Jesus forever, fully satisfied forever and ever and ever in Him. That's what we long for. And yet, Here's what we know. There are times 
that that last day, so to speak, kingdom breaks in to the here and now. And we see God's kingdom power and work happening even today, just like we did in Esther. How did we see it in Esther? When God's justice on the enemies of his people were actually exacted in real time in the presence of Esther the queen and her people were saved. That is a picture and an image of that end time salvation when all the enemies of God will be put away and God's people will be fully saved. But you've seen it too if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been changed. You did not love God. You did not go after him. Your heart was for yourself. And by the sheer mercy of God, your hard heart has been changed to a heart of flesh. And you love him and you want to please him and live your life for him. That is nothing short of a miracle. It is the end day kingdom breaking into the here and now. That's why Jesus prays in his prayer of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, O God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, may you bring your kingdom here and break it in right now so that we see you save people, you see you transform people. You've seen it. You've experienced it. The fact that a church even gathers at all is a testimony of God's amazing grace that people would gather and want to praise God together as a group and consider each other better than themselves is the last day kingdom breaking into the here and now. When you see people confessing their sins and coming to faith in Jesus, that's the last day kingdom breaking into the here and now. Whenever you sit down with the Bible and your heart is warmed and encouraged That's the last day kingdom breaking in. God is meeting you and encouraging you when you find comfort in the midst of your sorrow because King Jesus gets sweeter and sweeter and you know his presence like you've never known it. The end day kingdom is breaking into the here and now. You've had these moments. And we're called to remember them. Remember the salvation of God. And sometimes our remembrance is of large things. Spiritual markers, massive things, and sometimes they're of maybe micro-deliverances. Micro-times when God has shown up, maybe even just in the reading of the Word day by day. But I want to tell you about one macro one in my life. It was 2015 when my wife and I headed to San Diego to be a part of the TCT Pastors and Wives Retreat. I know, Suffering for Jesus. And... At that time, uh, Byron Glaspie was a pastor here, so Byron and Brianna Glaspie went with us to this retreat, and we had to go early. The retreat was from Tuesday to Thursday, but we had to show up on a Monday because I'm a part of the lead team and leading those meetings, and so I had to be in meetings while they got to go out and party. I wasn't bitter, it's just something I had to do, and they got to do the fun stuff. So what they did was they got to go out and find a good restaurant, and then they decided that they knew that there were some famous people that lived in San Diego, so they were going to go try to find their homes. That'll be fun. Let's just find these large homes. And so they get in a car, and they just start driving. But they can't really find it. And then they, winding through these hills of San Diego, they get a little lost. And so the road narrows, and all of a sudden they see this small little sign. And it says, Mount Helix. And so they're like, huh. 
Wonder what that is. We basically have no agenda. Let's go find out. So they keep driving up to these signs, Mount Helix, and there's this little parking area. They park, and as they get out of the car, they see this like built-in like amphitheater type thing on the side of this mountain. And as they kind of walk out over the amphitheater, all of a sudden, this is what they see. This ginormous cross. Huge. I do not know how tall it is, but it was huge. Come to find out, it's the only large cross like this in the entire city. And they were there at sunset, and they decided to sit there and have some personal time of worship. Now, what I didn't tell you was the backdrop to this moment. When we arrived in San Diego on that Monday, we got news from the doctor of our little girl that her autoimmune disease, which was in medical remission, had come back and that it had flared back up. She has um, muscle degenerative uh, thing, disease that's in the rheumatology family, and were it not treated, she wouldn't be able to walk. They said that she would not have made it were she still in Ethiopia. And so what happened was this. She took this medicine. We've been in Duke Hospital a lot. She was in medical remission. And then on this Monday, we found out she was no longer in remission and the disease had come back. We contemplated going back home and just missing the whole retreat. We were devastated. And we knew that that would mean a lot more medicine and a lot more treatment, a lot more Duke hospital visits. We didn't know what to expect. But we realized there was really nothing we could do. And so we stayed. But we were massively divided, deeply distraught. And this is the trip my wife takes. She sees a cross. And they have this personal time of worship. Well, she had left her phone back in the room. I'm still in meetings at this point. She comes back. And she finds her phone. There's a voicemail on her phone. And as she picks up the phone, it was Mara Taranike. Mara knew nothing of this. No one knew of this except for my parents and Byron and Bree who were there with us. Mara said, I just had you on my heart. And I was praying for you. And she said, while I was praying for you, I had a vision of you bowing down at the foot of a cross. And I just want you to know, your God loves you, and he's with you. And that's it. There's those times when coincidence doesn't explain it. Because here's what happened the next Sunday. We come in, and we're hanging out in this foyer out here, which is, you know, chaos in between services. And there's a family that has been with the church from the beginning, Barbara and Scott Thomas. Barbara and Scott have had some significant health issues, and so they could only come to church every now and then. They were able to come this Sunday, and they had not been in a while. And they come into the foyer, and Barbara looks at my wife and says, Is mercy okay? And she has no idea all that has gone on. And Dana was like, Why do you ask? And she says, I was asleep last night, and I had a dream. I had a dream that was of the Bible story when Jesus says, call all the children to come unto me. And I saw your little girl, Mercy. And she was sitting on Jesus' knee. And here's what I heard him say. God has delivered you, and he will deliver you again. And Barbara said, 
I don't know what that means. What's that mean? My wife was able to share a story. A story of a sovereign God who can even work in dreams and in healing bodies, in orchestrating paths, and it's just like the book of Esther. You don't call these things coincidences. You call it an intervening God who shows off his glory and his love. He shows off his salvation. I hope that encourages your faith that our God is at work. You have had some macro salvation moments in your life. They might not have looked like that, but you have had some macro moments that God has been guiding you. But I want you to also remember not only God's salvation in the macro, but God's salvation in the day-to-day. I want you to think about his micro-salvation, his micro-mercies, his micro-deliverance. Those times when you prayed and prayed and prayed for God to give you that job, and you didn't get the job, but what you did get was God providing for you financially even though you did not have a job. You praise him for the micro-mercies, the great ways that he's shown up. Some of you longing to be married, And you're not in that relationship. And you've pleaded with God that he would allow you to be married. And you don't have that relationship. But here's what you might have. You might have had the sovereign God of the universe draw near to you in ways that you have never known and he has comforted you. That's a micro mercy. You might have been given a friendship that you never expected and God was near to you. And you found friendship in another and that was a micro mercy. And you can trust him. You can call out to him and ask him for those macro deliverances. But until then, look for him in the everyday. Look for him in those micro mercies, the mercies of God to you. Because here's what we know when you think of salvation, you think of the cross. And what we know is while you go through your suffering or your trials, think of the cross. The cross has a Savior who was rejected so that you would always know in your suffering you are not being rejected. And we have a Savior who suffered and who was forsaken in his suffering so that you would know moment by moment in your suffering that you are not being forsaken. Jesus stood in our place. He took our sin upon him so that we would not be treated as our sins deserve if we will trust in him by faith alone. So you can know it and you can remember it and you can rejoice in God's salvation. That's what the feast was for. The feast of Purim was so that the people would remember God's salvation in the book of Esther. But it was also so that they would remember God's reversals. The reason I state it this way is it's explicit in the text. Esther 9, 1 and 2. Look at Esther, I mean Esther 9, verse 1. Look at it. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemy of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the what occurred? The reverse occurred. The reverse occurred and the Jews gained mastery over all who hated them. This is a call for the people to remember God's great reversals. 
So make sure you understand what was happening with these feasts. These feasts were when they would stop everything else they were doing and they would remember, they would celebrate and they would remember the God of great reversals. I've experienced a great reversal also. I experienced it this week. Let me set the background for you. For years, we have had a men's fellowship around flag football. Now, you'll understand, I did not have this illustration until yesterday, but now I do. I don't know how long, I think in my sorrow, I quit counting. Around five to seven years, I played flag football with my team. All of those years, I came in second. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Always came in second. Kept losing at the end. So then I had two years of basically flag football wandering in the wilderness where we didn't win a game, I don't think. So I played, we still, we didn't win a game. So this year, expectations are really low, okay? And this year, our team won. Yep, uh-huh, it happened. Now, this is something that is not expected, a great reversal, because when I picked up my daughter from basketball practice after this tournament was over, because the last game got rained out, when I went and picked her up, I said, Mercy, guess who won flag football? She says, I'm so sorry. (laughs) And so, you know, that's reasonable, okay? The track record has not been good. And I said, no, we won. And she's like, what? You know, okay, whatever. And then we moved on. But no exaggeration. I so did not want to play. I had a boy that was playing basketball. I was going to go watch. And I was going to, I needed to drive some kids around. My parents filled in. I was, I literally, no exaggeration, was praying for it to rain it out so that I didn't have to show up. But it didn't rain it out. And so I was going to be faithful. And so I came. And that's what happened. We ended up winning. And it was mostly because I was on the youth team who has unending energy. And so all you have to do is throw it to the fast guys. So anyway, God specializes in great reversals. But there have been times seriously. Now, I prayed pretty seriously that he would cancel it. But there have been times when you've prayed. You've prayed seriously for God to do a reversal and it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And as you have persisted over and over in no answers to prayer, you've wondered why. What's God going to do? Why is he not showing up? The feast was meant to be an annual remembrance that God specializes in great reversals. Now, here's what we know. Those reversals don't always happen now. But here's what we do know. Those reversals will happen. The end has everything being made new. God will reverse all things that are bad. And he will make things new. But there are times in the here and now that he flips the script. There are times that he reverses. And they were meant to remember at that feast and to rest in that our God specializes in great reversals. And I can tell you, and I know you know this, 
that many of you who have gone through suffering, some of the greatest tragedies that you have experienced as you've experienced them in Jesus, you have seen it turn into your greatest growth, your greatest understanding, your greatest empathy. It has taught you some of the greatest lessons of life. And they weren't greatest because you were made smarter, but they were, it was greatest because your heart broadened in its love for Jesus. You're more sensitive to him than ever before. And those are those small ways that God is taking what the devil means to harm you and he is changing you and encouraging you and strengthening you. Our God specializes in great reversals. But while you are waiting, while you are waiting and praying for God to change those things that are so painful in your life, how do you wait? Well, 1 Peter chapter 5 helps us. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How do we live while we wait for God to do the great reversals, either breaking into the here and now or on the last day? We wait by pursuing humility. Why? Because this verse tells me that God opposes arrogance, but as you step into humility, his grace is attracted to it, and he will give you the grace and the help you need as you walk in humility. There's been so many times when I've just tried to point this out. Whenever you let somebody into your journey, whenever you share that I've got this struggle, whenever you say, I need you to pray for me, that is humility. And God promises to honor that humility with the grace of his help to pour out his mercy upon you. But also, 1 Peter chapter 5 goes on and it says this, So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, what? He may exalt you. That's the promise. The promise is that there will come a great reversal at the right time. He will exalt the humble. And that's why you see it all the time throughout the scriptures. Luke 18, 14 is an example for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So I encourage you, while you wait for God to do great reversals, while you are struggling in your pain, I pray that you would press into humility, that you would live lives of mercy, that you would live lives of justice defined by the scriptures, not defined by politics or your neighbor but allowing the scriptures to show you how to live. Because you know on that last day, all racism will be put away. All bullying will be done away with. All arrogance will be humbled. And all those who have used their power and their money and their social status to put others down, they will bow their knee on that last day. For every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen. And the great reversal will happen. And so we are to remember day by day that God specializes in great reversals. So you trust Him. You who are being oppressed you who find yourselves in some sense a minority, you who find yourselves overwhelmed by the arrogance of others and you think that they're always winning out, trust him. 
trust him. Walk and step in humility. Walk and step into lives of mercy and justice as defined by the scriptures and rest in his great reversing power. And finally, remember God's faithfulness. Remember his salvation. The feast was to remember salvation. It was to remember him as a God of great reversals. And it was to remember God's faithfulness. I want to show you the Jewish calendar here. Now, you might not fully be able to see everything, but I'm going to give it a whirl for you. The inner circle are our months, okay? January through December. The outer white circle are the Jewish calendar months and how they overlap with our months. Now, what you need to notice is that what was commanded of the Jewish people were to have multiple times every year where they had these feasts and celebrations to remember God's faithfulness. They had, in the first month, Passover. Isn't it remarkable that while Haman was devising a plan to destroy all the Jews, the Jews were at that time remembering God's faithfulness to deliver the people of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. They were commemorating Passover. They also had the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the second Passover and the Feast of Weeks and Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was meant for them to remember their time of wandering in the wilderness and how God provided for them there. The last great day, Hanukkah. And now if you look at the 12th month of Adar, which is around February and March in our months, it is Purim. It is the Feast of Remembering God's Salvation, God's Great Reversals. The feast of remembering God's faithfulness. And we do things similar to this today. We have Easter. And Easter even has for us, we have certain days. On Thursday, we observe Monday, Thursday. And on Friday, we observe Good Friday to remember the death of Jesus. And then on Sunday, we celebrate that he has been raised from the dead. And we have this time where we remember every single year, like clockwork, we remember that our Savior died in our place and rose from the dead three days later. We remember it. It's also what's about to happen here at Christmas time, right? We celebrate annually at Christmas that God keeps his promises. He sent his son to be the savior of the world. God dwells among us. That's Christmas. But it's very interesting. In Purim, what they would do, it says it in the text in Esther chapter 9, that they would give gifts to one another and they would give gifts to the poor. Similarly, we give gifts at Christmas. Similarly, we can make gifts more important than Jesus. And similarly, they can make the gifts more important than remembering the God who saves. But we have these regular cycles in our system to remember God's salvation. But we also do it annual or weekly, don't we? When we gather together, we remember our God. We celebrate Him. This is why, although Paul says it doesn't matter the day to you, but there's still a Sabbath principle where you are to stop your working and honor God and to declare that He is your great provider. You're not ultimately your great provider. It's a rhythm, a remembrance built in, week in and week out, that God loves you and he will provide you 
And ultimately, the money you have is not yours. You are a steward of it. God owns everything. It's His. It's a reminder. And what will we do here in a little bit? We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And what does Jesus say about the Lord's Supper, which we take almost every week? He says, do this in what? Remembrance of me. That's why we have these things built into our regular rhythms of worship and life is so that we will remember. What does remembering have embedded in it? It's the temptation to forget. May we not forget the faithfulness of our God. May we not forget that He specializes in saving us. May we not forget He is the God of great reversals. May we not forget this beautiful story of God's faithfulness to use broken people for His name. I want to end with a three-minute video from the Bible Project. The Bible Project has videos that summarize entire books of the Bible, and here's the end of one of those on the book of Esther. And I thought it would be helpful as we conclude our study of Esther. Let's look at it together. Focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, Purim. The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom and we are told now of his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in exile. Now, step back. Notice how this whole story has been designed. The story was full of moments of ironic reversal, but we can now see the whole story is structured as an ironic reversal, right down to the details. So the king's splendor and feasts and decrees are mirrored by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees at the end. Esther and Mordecai, they first saved the king, but now in the end, they save all of the Jews. Then you have Haman's elevation and edicts and banquet that gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edict and banquet. And then at the center, you have Esther and Mordecai's planning scenes, and then Esther's two banquets that act as a frame around the greatest moment of reversal in the whole story, Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation. Beautiful. Another fascinating feature of this book is the moral ambiguity of the characters. There's a lot of drinking and anger and sex and murder, of which Mordecai and Esther are a part, not to mention their violation of many commands in the Torah, like marrying Gentiles or eating impure foods. And so the story's not putting Mordecai and Esther forward as moral examples, as if it endorses all of their behavior, but they are put forward as models of trust and hope when things get really bad. And so the book of Esther comes back to that question with which we begin, why God is not mentioned. The message of this book seems to be that when God seems absent, 
when his people are in exile, when they're unfaithful to the Torah, does this mean that God is done with Israel? Has God abandoned his promises? And the book of Esther says no. It invites us to see that God can and does work in the real mess and moral ambiguity of human history. And he uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish his purposes. And so the book of Esther asks us to be willing to trust God's providence even when we can't see it working and to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming his world. And that's what the book of Esther is all about. And so as we conclude, I pray that you begin to see this, that God specializes in using broken people like you and me he specializes in using broken people like us called the church to make his name known and to further his greatness to the ends of the earth. The call for all of us at this time is to remember. Remember that our God saves. Remember that our God specializes in great reversals. Remember, despite what all circumstances might say, our God is faithful and he's with you. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask, I ask that right now we would join one another, join one another in repenting of our sins, join one another in remembering rather than forgetting. Father, I ask that together as a church, I pray that we would recall your power and your unceasing love, your faithfulness. And I just ask that these themes in the book of Esther would encourage us so much that we would continue to press into you day by day, that you would make us strong where we feel weak. And Father, you would use us, sinful people as we are, to do great and mighty things for your name. Thank you for your church. Bring us together, unify us, that we might be one voice sent out to make much of your name in our workplaces, in our schools, as we send those out to different places to plant churches or to encourage other churches or to reach out to the ends of the earth where people have never heard of Christ. Father, please, may we not forget you in the day to day. Father, I ask that in this time of the Lord's Supper, we would remember above all Jesus. And may we treasure him above every other treasure.